All right, go ahead and get your Bibles out. I think that's it as far as those uh, announcements go. Uh, we've been going through Ephesians, and we're going to pick up right where we left off last week in uh, verse 17 of chapter 4. So if you don't have your Bibles uh, with me, we're going to have it on the screen for you. We'll go to verse 19 to start out with. Paul says this, and I'll read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll, we'll get into it. Now this I say and testify, which is another way of saying I must insist. So this I say and I must insist in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice, every kind of impurity. Let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we know that this is your word and we came here to encounter you in your word. We came here to encounter you in song. We came here to experience you again as we celebrate the table. And I pray now as as your servant delivering this truth um, that we wouldn't go through the motions, that I wouldn't go through the motions, that My brothers and sisters here wouldn't just sit through another sermon and leave with more information, but that we would leave with our hearts softened and our hearts changed and our minds changed, that we would love you more, that we would understand the gospel better, that we would have our hearts recaptured by the beauty and glory of Christ, and that you would be glorified in us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Several years ago, a a British filmmaker named Mark Singer filmed and produced a documentary that is one of my favorite documentaries. It's about the homeless people who are living underground in the tunnel system in New York City. Uh, The documentary is called Dark Days. It won several awards. You can actually watch it for free on Amazon Prime. I tried to find as many pictures as I could on Google, but it's filmed in the dark. So... It's really grainy and hard to see, but I wanted you to have an image. I'd seen it a few weeks ago, or not a few weeks ago, a few years ago, uh, but I was reminded of it as I was studying our text today because it's really almost exactly what Paul is describing, what he's just described. Uh, It's fascinating to look at humanity and the depths that people will go in order to find a sense of purpose and a sense of security and happiness. These people are living underground in complete darkness and utter destitution, and yet somehow they adjusted to it and made it their home. One of the subjects of the film, this guy Greg right there folding his pants, described his experience like this. So when I first came down, it was real dangerous because even in the daytime, it was dark. I was real scared. Ain't nobody in their right mind going to go down there. And I've cleaned this up significantly, by the way. But once you get past your fears, after the first or second night, you adjust. You'd be surprised what the human mind and the human body can adjust to. At first, I was only going to stay down here for a couple of weeks, but then I, I started building. And now I've been down here for almost six years. I guess I just got comfortable and forgot about time. Can't really see it in that picture, but he was actually holding a razor. Like many others in this tunnel, Greg went down there looking for some security, and he built a shack for himself, built his own little house. He, he hooked up electricity. 
he found a stove and he found a refrigerator and he found even a TV and he could watch as much TV as he wanted on electricity that he wasn't paying for. And so in his mind, it was total freedom. They, they took pride in keeping their houses clean as well, which is pretty amazing because they were building these shacks on dirt. And yet one of the guys would, would find a new rug in the trash every couple of weeks and he'd, he'd replace his rug and he had a no shoe policy. So before you entered his shack, you had to take your shoes off so that he could keep it clean. They had pet dogs and cats and some of them even had pet gerbils. And one of the pictures, the dude's holding up a picture of his gerbil. You can't tell though. They, by all accounts, they were living normal lives. She's given him a haircut with electricity that's being stolen from the, uh, the streets. They worked during the day. They had their neighbors over at night. They played darts. They wrestled with their dogs. They built onto their houses. They watched as much TV as they wanted. They had fully adjusted. They were comfortable. They were free. And in their minds, they were really living. You can take the slides off now, Lisa. Thank you for that. The problem for these people is obvious though, Right? No matter how hard they tried to live normal lives, no matter how hard uh, they tried to build comfortable lives, no matter how big their houses got, their little shacks and how much they added onto it and how many rugs they found from the trash to make it look nice and whatever else they did, no matter how normal it seemed, their search for meaning, their search for happiness and hope and comfort were nothing more than an exercise in futility. I mean, they would talk about living this life of freedom without any bills or any people telling them what to do, but no matter how hard they tried to spin it, they knew they were in bondage. They were alienated, abandoned, and desperate for an escape back into the light. That's why this film just kept coming back up in my mind this past week as I was studying our text and I watched it again just so that I could refresh my memory on it because what Paul wants us to see today is that their experience in the tunnels was every single one of our experiences as well in life. Their futility was our futility. Their suffering and alienation and destitution were the same as ours before we experienced and encountered Christ. And so now at this point in his letter, we've reached the climax in fact, commentators would say that the verses I just read to you are the climax of the letter. Basically, he spent three and a half chapters telling us all of this amazing stuff about who we are in Christ and, and who we were and what we've been rescued from. And now he's about to get into this is what happens as a result, but this is the defining line. This is where the die are cast, so to speak. This is where we either believe or we don't believe. And so he says, guys, this is who you once were. At this point, you need to make the decision to never go back there again. And so he does that not only by reminding his believing audience of where they were, but by begging them, insisting in the Lord that they don't return. Look at how he starts his plea again in verse 17. He says, now this I say and testify, which like I already said is another way of insisting. I must insist in the Lord, which is a way of showing that he's not insisting on his own authority here. He's insisting on the authority of God, on, on the very Lord who saved him and rescued him. He wants them to know that this isn't his idea. This isn't his imagination. This is God. 
that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now remember, Gentile is just another word that Jewish people called non-Jewish people, which included the Greeks and Romans. And Paul just so happened to be writing his letter to a bunch of Greek people in a Greek church in a Greek city. And he's saying, don't walk, which is another way of saying don't live or think or act or talk or dream like all of those Gentiles do. It's as if Paul was telling these Greeks to stop thinking, acting, talking, and dreaming like Greeks. Or I guess if you were writing to us today, it would be like him telling a bunch of Americans, hey, listen, all of you proud, patriotic Americans, stop living, thinking, dreaming, talking, and acting like Americans. Stop. Now, now you know why he started with this whole, hey, I'm not speaking with my own authority thing. Speaking with the authority that comes from God, because this isn't easy to hear, let alone swallow and follow. But for Paul, talking about Gentiles wasn't a racial thing. Um, he wasn't anti-Greek. He wasn't anti-Gentile. As we saw just a few sentences earlier, he said he was so excited and thrilled and honored to be a messenger to the Gentiles. He loves the Gentiles. He was in prison for the Gentiles. So for him, it wasn't a racial or cultural thing. For him, it was a spiritual thing. It was referring to those who were still outside of the family of God, outside of Christ, and removed from his promises and his provision and his purposes. So in other words, Paul is urging these believing Gentiles to stop living like they used to live before they knew him, before they knew Christ. And this is so significant for us today. Oh man, this is so significant because, man, do we have the tendency to go back. We have the tendency to look back at that old life with rose-colored glasses and this kind of nostalgic sentimentalism of the good old days. And we even look at people who are still there and sometimes we're envious as if it's better than what we've already got. And so I've heard some people describe it as like, man, I got like 90% of my life here in Christ, but I got 10% over here. I'm going to hold on to a little bit of it because I miss it too much. I like it too much. Paul's going to use this analogy of, of putting on and, and putting off like clothing, you know. It's almost like the old man that we were saved from is a garment and we hang it up in our closet. Rather than burning it outside in the fire pit, we keep it hung up. And every once in a while we go, we, we try it on and, and it feels good. Then we take it back off and we, we go back to Christ and it's this back and forth type. Of, have any of you ever done that? Ever, ever been there? This is our natural tendency, right? We have the remnants of the old life, one foot in, one foot out. And so Paul is talking to us. Yes, he's talking to Greeks in Ephesus, but he's talking to us today. No, I must insist. I must urge you above anything else. Don't go back. There are three marks of this old life that he really wants to hammer home and insists that we don't go back. And he wants us to see them clearly so that we really won't go back. And that's what I want to show you today. The first mark of our old life is futility. Futility is really interesting in this context too because it's attached to the mind and the intellect and the understanding of our former life. Verse 17, 
refers to the futility of our minds. Verse 18 says we were darkened in our understanding or ignorant. That word futility means meaninglessness, okay? Worthlessness, emptiness. It's used a ton in that book, Ecclesiastes, in the Old Testament, where the author's just like, man, I tried all of this stuff, wealth, sex, uh, power, and, and it was all meaningless. It was all futile. That's the same word. As one commentator put it, they had been, referring to the Gentiles or us before Christ, we had been intellectually blacked out. And as a result, the rest of our lives had become meaningless. We just bought a a new house. We moved in on Sunday. Many of you helped us, and thank you so much, because we could not have done it without you. My favorite part of our new house isn't actually part of the house. It's this outside room that the previous uh, owner was using as a storage room. Tons of junk in that. I mean, I, I had to clean that out for a long time to get it to where it can now be my home study. And I got a lazy boy in there, and I have a couple of tables, and there's still a bunch of junk, but it's on one side. It's not heated, it's not air-conditioned, but he's got some, some cheap carpet, outdoor carpet. He's got some walls up there, and it's my office. And studying was awesome this past week. I just laid in that lazy boy, and I read, and I wrote. It was great. The only thing, though, about this office is that since it was a mess, and it's outside, like it's not insulated, snakes could slide up in there, and bugs can slide up in there, it's not totally sealed. Um, When I was cleaning it out, I I killed, you know, a black widow, I I came across tons of skeletons of bugs. I, I told Caroline, this is like a graveyard for bugs, just like skeletons of bugs everywhere. He left a shot vac, so I cleaned it. So I feel a little uneasy out there, I'm not going to lie. Like, I love it, and it's awesome, but I'm like, is there a spider crawling on me? And so two days ago, <laughs> in my lazy boy, I'm, I'm reading and I'm writing, and in, in, the peripheral, in my peripheral vision, I see something, like, right next to my face, and I look, and it's a brown recluse, like, six inches from my face that is just kind of, you know, slunk down from the ceiling to check me out, and try to kill me. Um, and I just jumped up out of my seat and I'm <laughs> like heart racing. I hate spiders so much. You can ask Caroline. I hate spiders and snakes. And I'm just staring at this brown recluse and it, it knows that I've seen it. So it's trying to scurry back up. And I got one of my commentaries and I, I smashed that brown recluse. Its remnants are still actually in my commentary. Um, yeah, it's really, really, really scary. The, the thing about spiders though, is that um, as scary as they are and as much damage as they can do, I mean, if that thing had bit me, I'd be in a hospital right now. They know absolutely nothing of the world, right? Uh, They can spin webs, they can eat, they can reproduce, they can leave skeletons of bugs all over a room, they can scare the mess out of, uh, you know, a six foot three dude, even if they're like this. Um, But they have no understanding beyond instinct. I killed that spire before it could get to me, but before I did, the only thing it really knew was that it had experienced some world in this room and some giant was invading it, and so out of instinct it tried to attack that giant. Has no sense of the house as a whole, has no sense of Charlotte as a city, has no idea of a concept called hope or or peace or joy, doesn't understand eternity. It's just a spider in a closet, 
acting out of instinct. This is the normal existence of spiders. They're futile in their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They don't understand the world. So they only see it through the smallest possible lens. And that's what Paul wants us to understand about who we were before Christ. We had no sense of why we were here. What in the world are we doing on this planet? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What is hope? What is peace? What is joy? What is success? How in the world do we attain it? Constantly chasing after things, pursuing things, hoping that we would get it and never arriving at it. Totally futile. It was as if our thinking had become so clouded and so darkened that our lives had become this endless exercise in futility. Now, if you're a really smart person, you have a huge IQ, you might feel the need to object a little bit because there is no way that that could be an accurate depiction of you and your brilliance. And you're you're so smart. How could you be futile in your thinking and darkened in your understanding? No, you're a philosopher and you have all the answers. But before you get defensive, just remember that Paul's original audience was Greek and the Greeks were world famous for their intellect. Their philosophers had dramatically impacted the Roman Empire. And guys like Plato and Aristotle, I mean, they're still at the foundation of our philosophy today. The Greeks actually believed that the best and noblest and most worthwhile part of the human being was the intellect. And so they had this sharp division between flesh and mind. To them, the flesh was natural, it was earthy, and and it constantly drew them down and kept them on the surface. But the mind was from heaven. The mind was the only divine element of the human being, and it drew us upward toward God. And so they thought that philosophy was the savior of the world because philosophy was going to enable our minds to get up to God. And that's why they pursued it above everything else. And then Paul comes along like a dad with a little pin at a kid's birthday party. He just starts popping all the balloons. (laughs) Like, sorry, I'm I'm about to burst all of your bubbles right now. And they're crying like little kids. Like, no, we thought that we had understanding. We thought we were wise. And he says, no, this thing that you think is going to save you, your intellect and your mind and your understanding and your wisdom is actually one of the main things that's damning you. It's your problem. Reason and philosophy are great, but they're not your savior because yours have been clouded and darkened and have become futile. So he says, man, you, you walked in the futility of your minds. You walked in the darkness of your understanding and the ignorance that was in you. And rather than lifting you from earth and driving you upward, it was forcing you down into the darkness. So the point that Paul wants us to see here is that it's possible to have incredible minds like the Greeks, like Plato. I I like a lot of Plato. It's possible to have incredible minds and still be futile in our thinking and as a result live meaningless lives. It's possible to have wisdom and understanding and still live the life of a fool. You could be the wisest person in the world and you can have the answer to every philosophical argument and still live the life of a fool. It's possible to have all the answers and explanations and still be in desperate need of enlightenment. 
See, for the Greeks, it wasn't that they couldn't put together logical arguments or solve problems and concepts. It was the fact that at some point, their reasoning, as great as it was, was distorted. And Paul wants us to see that this is every single one of us, no matter how smart, no matter how intellectual or philosophical or whatever, it was distorted apart from Christ. And so all of our attempts to find meaning and hope and peace were an exercise in futility. This is who we once were, guys. Paul says, I must insist that you no longer live like this. As if you don't have understanding. As if you haven't been enlightened. You know, one, one of the big ways, one of the big differences between spiritual enlightenment and spiritual darkness is that we now no longer look to things that are seen, but we look to things that are unseen. And so when Paul says, don't go back to the darkness, don't go back to the futility of your minds, what he's saying is, stop looking at all of this stuff as as this transient savior. Look to the things that aren't seen, the eternal, the stuff that's going to last. But how often do we go back to our bank accounts, to our jobs, to our success, to our family and relationships, looking for them to fill us up? Guys, that is an effort in futility, an exercise in futility. This leads to the second mark of our former life, which is alienation. And this one really shows why our thinking was darkened and futile in the first place. Look back at verse 18. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. In other words, our minds have been dark, darkened Because we willingly removed ourselves from the presence of the source of light. The reason our understanding is now futile and we live with this cloud in front of us is because we saw the light and we said, I don't like it. And we removed ourselves from it, alienating ourselves from God. And so our distorted reasoning is actually a result of our own disobedient and rebellious hearts. Listen to how Isaiah 5, 20 puts it. He says, we chose to call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness. And we put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We chose to do that. John 3, 16 through 20 tells us why. It's the most famous verse in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, I just put begotten in there as a habit. It's not actually in the ESV. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But listen to this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So he was giving us the light. He was was bringing enlightenment. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And then look at this. You can switch it, Lisa. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light. Why? Because our works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works would be exposed. See, our lives were futile Our thinking was futile, our our minds were darkened, not because we were dumb intellectually, but because we were dead spiritually. 
Not because we didn't have access to the light, but because we hated the light. We chose to be alienated from him. And this is what we need to grasp today. Trying to live life well apart from the author of life is like building a shack underground and and the pitch black and putting a window in it so that we can enjoy the view. It's like building a house on dirt and getting a rug from the dumpster and then telling people to take their shoes off at the door so we can keep it clean. That's what we're doing when we try to live life well apart from the one who created it and invented it and created us so that we could enjoy it and enjoy him. Doesn't matter how big we get our shacks, okay? It doesn't matter how nicely we decorate them or how many people come over for dinner at night or how comfortable or or free we might feel in them or how much TV we get to watch. If our existence isn't defined by the God who created us, it is vanity, meaninglessness, futility. And yet, guys, this is what Paul is saying. This is how we chose to live. This was the way of our old life. And so just, to, just as that group of mole people had removed themselves from the light of the sun and chosen to take up residence in the shadows, so we chose to remove ourselves from the light of the sun, S-O-N, and live in darkness because we loved it. How do we get there, you might ask? Well, Paul says we hardened our hearts and became numb to the truth, and that's the third mark of our old lives. We lived with hearts of stone. Verse 18 says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, but it's due to the hardness of heart. Why are we ignorant? Because we have become callous and have given ourselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That Greek word for hardening is porosis, and it it talks about a stone that's harder than marble. In, in some uh, Greek literature, it's used to describe bones and joints and the hardening of, of joints that could kind of be like our, our version of arthritis. Uh, it's, it's also applied to eyes. And when it's applied to eyes, it, it refers to the process of going blind. And so what Paul is essentially saying here is that we have blinded and and hardened our hearts against God to the point that we can't feel or see his presence anymore. He's there, but we've become numb to him. Verse 19 says we became callous. We lost all sensitivity or feeling. I don't know if you've ever um, studied leprosy Um, you've probably heard that that one of the worst things about leprosy is that it causes its victims to not be able to feel pain. They lose their sensation to the pain that would ultimately save them from really damaging their bodies and maybe even killing themselves. So you could step on a nail, and because you wouldn't have those nerves that tell you, hey, you just stepped on a nail and that hurts, you could walk with that nail in your foot for days before looking down and realizing, oh, I have a nail in my foot. Or or you could be roasting some marshmallows over an open fire and not realize that, that your hand was too close to the flame and that 
it was actually being burned while the marshmallow was being burned. You would have no sense of pain. No sensitivity whatsoever. You see, our ability to feel pain is actually one of the greatest gifts that God has given us because it protects us. I sprained my ankle a couple nights ago. I'm not going to play soccer for a few weeks. And that's a good thing. So I can heal, right? Pain is a good thing. And the same thing is true spiritually as well. God gave every single one of us a conscience. And Romans 1 tells us that he actually wrote his law on our hearts so that when we step outside of the boundaries, we feel pain. We feel conviction. We feel guilt. And we feel shame. And those things are good in context. I'm not saying shame is good or guilt is good. In light of the gospel, we're going to get to that. But those things are good because they protect us from going further and further and further into the pain and totally ruining our lives. Here's the thing. Every time we choose to reject the pain, we actually lose sensitivity to it. Every time we choose to reject that sense of pain, we lose sensitivity to it. We become calloused by it. See, every decision that we make to reject conviction actually numbs us to conviction to the point where we lose all sensitivity and feeling in our hearts become calloused and hard. I just want you to think about this for, for a second, and this is convicting for me, okay? I don't know exactly when movies came out, like the movie theater became a thing. Let's just go with like 60 years ago, maybe 70, I don't know, maybe 50. But, but 60 years ago when movies came out and the movie theater was a thing, Christians really struggled with the idea of whether or not they should go and see these movies. They were totally innocuous, okay? You're talking about like Judy Garland singing with Toto and, you know, The Wizard of Oz. I mean, it's like totally harm, harmless stuff. And they were trying to figure out, should we go to movies? And now it's like 60 years later and the movies aren't innocuous anymore, Movies are mostly objectionable and, and like the content on Netflix like is just about all TVMA, which used to mean like rated R back in the day. And we're not even having the discussion. We're just like, this is normal. When in Rome or, or, or when in America do as the Americans do. And that's what Paul is talking about. Guys, stop living like Americans. Stop thinking like Americans because you're not primarily an American. You've been invited into this new humanity, into this new race with a new ethic and a new goal and you've actually been given a new holiness. So stop thinking like you used to think. I know that that my heart has been calloused by entertainment. 100% fact. I know that. I've told you about my parents' three cuss word rule. Uh, It didn't help me. I would say it hurt me. Got to college, no parents, no three cuss word rule. I want to watch 
I'm going to watch any movie I want, no matter how many cuss words are in that movie, and it's going to be awesome. Now, when I used to watch movies with cussing, I was super sensitive to it. Um, now, nah. Now, I'm not saying don't go watch movies with cussing. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to, to go that, that way, but what I'm saying is I have seen a shift in sensitivity in my own heart. That's just a small thing. <laughs> when I was a kid, man, when I was a kid, before I was saved, well, this is not even, yeah, when I, when I, before I was saved, I was a thief. I stole all the time. I stole from my friends. I stole from my classmates, from Walmart, even from the church. It was a big deal. The thing is, when I was 10, I can remember stealing money out of the offering plate at church. You're stealing from God, all right? Um, I felt shame. I felt guilt. I felt the pain of conviction in my heart. And in that moment of pain, I had a choice to make as a young kid. I can either respond to the pain and change and stop and confess, give the money back, turn and go the opposite direction, or, which is what I, I did, suppress it, ignore it, pretend it's not really there, justify it, call it legalism or whatever, and keep on stealing. That's what I did. And so, man, I got into middle school, I stole everything I wanted, anything and everything I wanted. The only reason I stopped uh, stealing is because of my brother, and he blackmailed me for two years, and uh, I almost got sent to juvenile hall and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then I got saved, and I stopped for real. What happened, though? Man, it, every time I stole and suppressed the conviction and the pain, it got easier and easier and easier to steal and steal again. That's what Paul is talking about. We sin and, and we suppress truth and we, we suppress pain until our hearts become so calloused that we don't feel any guilt or shame anymore. We lose all sensitivity to God. And get this, as a result of losing our sensitivity to God, then we start chasing every other thing to, to make us feel alive again. We killed our hearts with our sin, and then we run to sin to try to make us feel alive again. If that's not an exercise in futility, I don't know what is. That's why St. Augustine said the punishment for sin is just more sin. God says, that's what you want, here you go, enjoy and we, we get on this downward spiral of sin, constantly chasing satisfaction, chasing feeling, but our hearts are hard, harder than stone. It reminds me a lot of the process that Greg went through when he moved underground. I, I showed you a picture of Greg. At first, darkness scared him to death. No person in their right mind would ever come down here. I just came down for a couple of weeks to get out of the cold and and then he says, now I've wasted six years of my life. I got comfortable. I adjusted. He lost his sensitivity to the darkness. Guys, sin has a narcotic effect on our hearts. Sin has a narcotic effect on our hearts. It feels good. It feels fun. It gives us pleasure for a while. But after time, it begins to break us down. 
and ruin us and deaden us to what is good and right and true. So sin leads us into more and more sin. This is how we all lived. We didn't want God. We loved darkness and not light. And so every time we saw him, every time his law would spring up in our hearts, we'd suppress it. We'd, we'd push him away. We'd, we'd move further and further into the darkness until it was willful and deliberate to the point where we couldn't hear him anymore. We lost our ability to respond to his call. Paul is saying, guys, don't go back to that. Even as Christians, we have a choice to make every time the Holy Spirit convicts us. We can choose to turn and change and stop and confess and move in a different direction. And that's a good thing. That's a life-saving thing. Or we can choose to suppress him and to quench him and to numb ourselves to him to the point where Man, there's an Old Testament passage. I actually can't even remember it off the top of my head. I should have found it, but it actually says that we walk away from the faith. It's a different theological conversation, but it's that serious. Paul says, don't go back. One of the implications of this is that is just the way that not only we, we approach our old life, but the way that we talk to people who are still there. The way that we share Christ with people who are still lost in darkness and hardened to the truth of the gospel, who, who don't want the light, who love darkness. I mean, this should impact the way that we talk to them, right? It shows us that we can't reason people into the kingdom of God. It shows us that it's not about understanding more arguments or getting new information or having all of the apologetics or whatever, not that those things are bad. But what we needed back then and what unbelievers need now more than anything is not new information or another explanation. What they need is spiritual illumination and enlightenment. They need something to happen to their hearts to take it from being stone and turn them into flesh. I was talking to my friend a couple of weeks ago who's a, who's a proud agnostic, a proud progressive. We were talking about uh, politics which led to a conversation about culture and eventually morality and ultimately to God. It was a, it was a great conversation. We disagree on everything, uh, but we're friends and, and it was good. And, and uh, it was fruitful and engaging. There were a couple of moments where I could see the light in his eyes of understanding, of, of hearing a philosophical argument and, and being able to say, that's true. And there was one point in our conversation where we were talking about God, we we're talking about all of this stuff, and, and he just sat back in his chair and he kind of sighed. And it was almost like a resignation that, that he knew what I was saying was true. And I was like, oh man, we're, we're getting there. Like, I'm about to reason this guy into the kingdom of God. And do you know what he said to me? In, in transparency and honesty, he said, you know, Ben, I'll be totally honest with you. Unless I experience some kind of supernatural enlightenment, I'm never going to believe. And I just looked at him and I smiled and I said, I know. I was the same way. And that's what I'm praying for. I'm praying that God would open your eyes, that he would soften your heart. Because without that, nothing can happen. The only solution for the hardness of our hearts and the sin that it led us into is a supernatural experience 
of Christ. Look at how Paul describes it in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. He's not talking about learning in a scholastic way. He's talking about an experience. That is not the way you experienced Christ. Assuming that you have heard him. Your Bibles say heard about him. It is the worst translation. I don't know why they did that. So I just took it out. Okay. Assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, true righteousness and holiness. Guys, our English translations are terrible at this point. Um, in, in this text, they really don't do a good job of capturing what Paul was trying to communicate in the original language, which was Greek. It uses tense, Paul uses tenses that we don't even have anymore. Uh, the tense, the aorist tense, A-O-R-I-S-T, doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, he, he, he actually makes up words where he's compounding words that we don't have equivalents to in our English language. And so I'm not trying to like beat up the translators here, uh, but every single commentator, every single expert that I, I read this past week basically was just like, our English translation of these four verses is a hodgepodge. For example, our English Bible sounds like Paul is telling us that we need to put off our old self and put on our new self that was created in the likeness of God, but he's just said our hearts are hard. He's just said that we can't do it. Our, our minds are darkened. We can't think straight. So how in the world are we supposed to put off something if our hearts are hard? How do we do something to eradicate our darkness and our futility? In the Greek, though, this tense for put off and put on is, is aorist, like I already said. And every time this tense is used in the Greek, it's always used to point back to a one-time moment in history. It's always used to talk about something that happened in the past and will never happen again. Since we don't have a tense like that in our English language, our translations fall short here because what Paul is talking about here is not cleaning up your act or pulling up your bootstraps and becoming righteous or becoming holy what he is talking about is putting off that old way of life and putting on that, that new way of life that happened when we encountered Christ. In that moment of history when we died with him and the old way of life died with him and then we rose with him and he put his righteousness in us and he put his holiness in us and he made us a new creation. Paul is saying, you have become this. You're not this way anymore. You're not the old man walking as the Gentiles do. You are a new creation and you have true holiness and true righteousness. He already said this in chapter one, that in Christ, we are holy. In Christ, we are blameless. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees his son. Our old self was put to death in him with all of its callousness and darkness and futility and sin. And our new self was raised to life in him as new creations. It's already happened. Our change of heart was a decisive, conscious decision to believe. 
If you believe in me, you will have everlasting life. Not if you get yourself out of darkness and start cleaning up your act and go to church and do all this good stuff. No, if you believe in me, you will live. It's over. It's done. Can't do it again. So now rather than leaving us with hearts of stone that can't see or feel the presence of God, he's given us hearts of flesh that beat that can know him and love him and sense him and experience him. Rather than leaving us in darkness, he's given us his light. And we love the light now. We don't love the darkness anymore. That's not because of us. It's because he, he gave us new hearts. Rather than leaving us for dead in those tunnels of despair, he raised us to life in his son. So when Paul says, listen up, I'm begging you, I'm urging you, I am insisting and even commanding with all that I've got, don't go back to that old way of life. He's begging us to become who we already are, who God has already made us to be. Just be who you are. You are holy. Now be holy. Grow in holiness. You are righteous. Now grow in righteousness. Oh, you are wise with the wisdom of God. Grow in wisdom. Don't go back to futility and darkness. You aren't dead anymore. So live like you're alive. Look to the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. Guys, I think if there's one thing that we could get from this text, it would be this emphatic, urgent plea to not go back. Don't go back. Toward the end of the documentary, I, I referenced throughout this sermon, Amtrak actually announced uh, that they were going to force, forcibly evict all of the homeless out of the tunnels. And they were going to bring the police down there and they were going to destroy the shacks and all of that because they wanted to reroute their trains through uh, that space in the system. Obviously, everyone in the tunnels, they were scared, they were angry, they were frightened. They didn't want to move. Everything they had, everything they possessed was down there and they didn't know what to do. And so the film's directors decided to help them. They actually went to the courts so that they could fight for and stand in the gap for all of these homeless people who had actually become their friends after the years and years of filming them. Amazingly, they were successful. They were able to get housing vouchers from the Department of Housing and Urban Living that enabled everyone who appeared in the film to move out of the tunnels and into their own apartments for free. Now, I really haven't seen a much better illustration of someone moving from darkness to light than, than this documentary. If you've got Amazon Prime, just go home and watch it. The last 15 minutes or so of, of the film is footage of these people getting sledgehammers and going to their little shacks and beating the mess out of them until they're nothing and they're laughing and they're dancing and they're singing and they're hugging and they're shouting because the old man is getting ripped to shreds. Those shacks that, that used to be their homes and they move into their new apartments. One of them said, it's incredible. He's pouring soy milk into his bowl of cereal and he's eating at a kitchen table and light is coming through the windows and he says, every day is something new and every day it's something good. 
Director, the director asked one of them if he was going to miss it. Man, this is huge. He said, yeah, I am going to miss parts of it, but not enough to go back to it. Yeah, I'm going to miss parts of it. And there were parts that were fun. There were parts that were good, but I'm never going back. In a moment of reflection, Greg, the guy who had spent almost six years underground, got really sober, and he says at the end of the film, it will never happen again. It was like a nightmare that I woke up out of, and I'm staying awake. I don't want to ever go back there again. Guys, this is our story. We were lost in the darkness and futility of our minds, hardened to God, given over to sin, totally hopeless and destitute until Jesus Christ left heaven, became a man, and stood in the gap for us. He didn't fight for us because we were his friends. He fought for us while we were still his enemies so that he could make us his friends. <laughs> And for him, standing in the gap wasn't just going to court and getting some housing vouchers for us. It was going to Calvary, hanging on a cross, and bearing the wrath of God for our sin that we deserved so that we could be made clean. And amazingly, he was successful. He was victorious. He won our freedom. For us, he secured our rescue and our redemption and our restoration. And the moment we believed in him was the moment that he took all that was old and beat it to smithereens and made us something new. And yes, there are times when, when we miss that old lifestyle. The flesh is, is still something that we live in. And, and every day there's this battle of like, do I envy that? Do I miss it? Oh, was it better than this? And, and we're always wrestling with that. And, and Paul just saying, listen, it's not. It's not better. Don't ever go back. We've been awakened from the nightmare. Let us stay awake. Let's become who he's already made us. And never, ever in a million years go back.